The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello there, and you're very welcome to part two of the Ask Me Anything Christmas special podcast from the Irish Times Inside Politics team. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio, Pat Leahy, Jennifer Bray, Jack Horgan-Jones, and Harry McGee. And we have a rake of more questions, very really interesting ones. Quite a difficult one to start with, Pat. Now, the question runs as follows. It comes from Kelly, and Kelly asks this. Very often in the Irish Times and on the podcast, results of opinion polls are shared or are discussed whereby there's talk of a decrease or an increase in support for a party or a party leader when actually looking at the figures. The change is only one or two percentage points. Given that the margin of error on these polls is usually three or four percentage points, a change of one or two percentage points means nothing. It's not that it means very little, and this bit's in italics, it means absolutely nothing at all. But then the articles and the discussions make it sound like concrete, irrefutable evidence of some sort of change and get into long discussions about what this decrease or what this increase might mean. The question, and we are getting to the question as follows, surely the highly educated and experienced Irish Times writers and editors must understand margins of error. So my question is, Why is so much credence given to statistically insignificant information? Is it because the Irish Times invests considerable amounts into these polls so that even if the results are at naught, they still want some return on their investment so they report (laughs) meaningless information as meaningful? Pat Leahy, political editor of the Irish Times. (laughs) So could you repeat the question? (laughs) I fear this question is based on the false premise that we don't acknowledge that there is a margin of error or that we overinterpret small statistical uh, small statistical movements when in fact we are at great and tedious pains always to point out not just the margin of error which actually isn't 4% or 3% it's 2.7% on the sample of 1200 people um, uh, but we are always at pains to point this out In and paragraph further seven. we are at pains to point out that the important thing in polls is not who's up a point or who's down a point in any given month. It's where the trend is going. And if we have not been tedious enough to uh, to point this out, though I have my doubts, if, if that is the case, then I undertake to redouble my efforts to bore listeners and readers even more with pointing out the limitations uh, of polls. One of the most important things about polls, Hugh, as I fear I may have told you uh, on many occasions before, is to realise not just what they tell you, but what they don't tell you. And I would have thought that we have been vociferous in pointing this out, but uh, but perhaps not. And maybe it's a New Year's resolution that well, we should Well, well Kelly appears to think not, you know, and we should take that on board. And and I'm sure you will agree that other media sources are not necessarily as scrupulous as we are in, in overselling the, the results of these things. I suppose if I were to be devil's advocate, and that's partly my job here, it would be to say, well, let's say there's an increase or a decrease of 2% in a party's vote. Should we not just put no change there on the graph, given our understanding of what margins of error are? No, because there there is a change. There is a change. Okay, there's a uh, a margin of error built into it, but the, the polling data tells you there is a 
that there is a change. Of course, um, it's not the same. That I mean, that's not the same thing as being there being a six point spread either side of the number. That's not what it means. Um, but uh, I mean, as I say, this is a complaint that is often made of uh, of polling coverage everywhere. My honest belief is that that we overinterpret uh, small changes, and actually, that often comes along with failing to appreciate the importance of the long term trends are the historical trends in polls, you know, and where governments tend to move midterm. Yeah. And, and isn't it true, uh, despite so your forth. good practice, that when these things turn, you know, end up as tweets uh, or headlines or short news bulletins or whatever it may be, they come across as these figures come across as being important when in some cases they're not important at all. Which is why that we try to, in everything we do, but particularly in our polling coverage, is to give context, proper context uh, to them. And my honest belief is that we do that pretty well. Um, does anyone? But I suppose we always need to keep it under review. Does yeah. anyone think we pay too much attention? I say we. I think all of us interested in politics, and particularly people involved in political media, pay too much attention to opinion polls. It's a criticism that's regularly heard, particularly when you're outside, you know, the direct electoral campaign season. Do well, they matter as much as we seem to imply they matter? I've been speaking to my friends about it. And eight out of ten say <laughs> yeah, that we don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, there are some difficulties with some opinion polls. I'm, I'm reading about how polling has changed in, in the US. I think when Gallup started doing polls a century ago, they never had any difficulty getting people to, to, to volunteer to do polls. People, you ring up people at random or you contact people at random and you try to get a kind of a demographic spread, an age spread, a geographical spread as well. They had no difficulties. But in the last 25 years, there have been, there are so many polls in America that a lot of people refuse to do them. And they've had particular difficulty getting um, polling data from from several demographic groups over there. So what they started doing then is they started using algorithms or kind of formulae to try to make up for that deficit. And that led them into all types of difficulties when it came to predicting elections, such as the 2016 presidential election, when one candidate was favoured to win by a landslide and ended up losing, albeit by a, a technical knockout, um, uh, as it were, so uh, one of the things that's important when you're looking at a poll is if you're looking at a poll for a beauty product on, on television and an ad, they'll say four out of five women prefer X product. And then you realise that like 30 women have been polled, all of whom have been paid for their services. So that's not a credible poll uh, in, in any with any stretch of the imagination. No, nor our Twitter polls yeah. or any sort of self-selecting sample. But that's really different to, to, to what yeah, because we're, proper we're, political yes, polls A do. proper political poll you have at least a thousand respondents, uh, again spread geographically, age-wise, uh, different demographic groups, uh, and you uh, you um, ask them questions that are not leading questions. You ask them neutral questions so that that they won't be confirming the bias that might be inherent in the question that you're asking. So that's what makes polls credible. And as long as you're able to make sure that you're getting the information and the data. From all of those responses. As long as your sample is as long as your sample is correct. Yeah. Right. So the science of polling says that if you get like a thousand people or so, you can actually do with a little bit less. Yeah. We do it with twelve hundred, which, which uh, brings down your margin of error. And uh, that those numbers, get, by the way, are an awful lot better than a lot of the polls that people 
turn into news items in the United States. One of the things about American polling is very often the numbers are lower than that, you know, yeah, at, at yeah, state level. Uh, it actually is possible to do a representative poll with a smaller, uh, smaller sample. The big, but the bigger the, the sample... The would be bigger, bigger, of course. The, the bigger the sample you do, the better. And the science is, uh, is, is about stirring the soup, okay? So if you have a big pot of soup, okay, you have all your ingredients in. If the soup is stirred correctly, then every bit of the soup tastes the same. So you stir your soup correctly, if you get your sample correct, if your sample process, and there are problems with political polling, huge problems with political polling. A lot of them, in my view, come down to the fact that the sampling process isn't correctly t- uh, thought through or doesn't... You mean in terms uh, of demographically, demographically correct? Well, so, so, here, so, so, so here, here's an example of something that's going on uh, at the moment. We've been puzzling this out with our pollsters a bit, right? So there's, um, so we do face-to-face polls. So our pollsters, Ipsos, go into your house, do it at your doorstep, and uh, and it's a, it's a face-to-face sampling process. There's other polls who uh, are have a, a big internet panel and they take a, a representative sample of that um, uh, 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 of, of that group of people and that's how they uh, that's how they do put it. other people do it over the phone and um, so if you think of it so every poll has to have X number of over 65s in it right now if you notice the results by some of the interse- uh, internet polls tend to have Fianna Fall slightly lower than uh, than we do. So typically, we are polling. We've been polling Fianna Fáil low twenties uh, all this year. Some of the internet polls have them in the mid teens, fifteen, sixteen. Now, yeah. so one of the things that I think may be going on there, subject to further investigation, um, in conjunction with our pollsters next year, one of the things that may be going on there is the type of over sixty fives that are on an internet panel, maybe less representative of Fianna Fáil voters are less likely to be Fianna Fáil voters than over 65s as a whole. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. To, how, do you, how do you get to the bottom of that? This is one of the things that we're trying, to, we're, we're trying to figure out. We've had a high degree of success in matching the campaign polls to the eventual result. That doesn't necessarily mean that the polls in mid-cycle, as we are now, are correct because we've nothing to judge them by. But what we do know is that in the last number of elections, Irish Times polls have been very, very close to the final result. Can, yeah, just, so we are getting something yeah, right with our sampling. Yeah, can I just pause it? I mean, I, th- I think that, that polls very close to an election are usually far more correct because people, sometimes in midterm, people haven't even thought about it, you know, and they sometimes they just throw away an opinion without thinking about it too deeply. But we know, but, from, we know from research, don't we, that there's a, there's a very large swathe of the population who only start thinking about this in the last Yeah, and that's, that, that's why they're more accurate coming close to, to an election. And actually, um, uh, ironically, polls taken after an election when the result is known tend to be quite inaccurate as well because people do tend to like to back a winner and even people who don't vote for the winner will say after an election that they back the, the winner. This, this, uh, be, this trend became evident when the referendum commissions as they then were conducted its polling after referendums to, to try to determine why people had voted in the way that they had. And they stopped doing the polling because people were telling porkies to them. People were saying that they had voted yes when they had voted yes when, when the yes side had won. And more people were saying that they'd voted no 
that actually voted no when the no side that won. That brings us to a whole other point which we're not going to get into today which is my own personal opinion that Irish people lie all the time and they do that sometimes <laughs> in certain kinds of opinion polls too when it comes to showing moral virtue or something. The voters can, are to blame and Irish people are liars. Yeah. We're going to move on to another question from Conor McGee. Hi folks, Merry Christmas. Um, two questions for you. First question, um, there's a lot of talk about Irish unity obviously at the moment and what I always wondered is, why are we trying to unite the entire um, the entire system? Why don't we look at something like the Irish rugby team, something like Tourism Ireland, which has united certain parts and it's worked really, really well? Why can't we look further than that? The obvious one being healthcare is probably great in the south, in the north. It's got the world's greatest marketing campaign behind it. But yeah, I just thought in terms of that, has that really been looked at? The second question um, regards the Northern Irish culture, specifically, I suppose, the Northern Irish Protestant culture. Has there been any discussion as to what best ways to integrate that, or I suppose specifically not to integrate that, to preserve it as a unique culture in uh, of itself um, within a potentially united Ireland? Thanks, guys. So two questions there. Jen, I'm going to put the first one to you, which actually sounds a little bit like Michal Martin's vision of a shared island, doesn't it? You know, finding places for cooperation. Yeah, but I think if I'm not correct, I didn't mishear the question there. A lot of it was about the institutions and um, how you marry them or potentially don't marry them. And this came up in the series of polling and work that Pat did um, in relation to those very questions. And the interesting thing was that the, um, correct me if I'm wrong, there was a unionist attachment towards devolved, uh, keeping devolved administrations in place, whereas voters in the South probably preferred a more integrated system of governments. And the question is, how do you marry that? Um, and if you did have, let's say, an all-party Oroctus, what exactly does that look like? And if you did keep devolved administrations, if you did it for a period of five years, maybe, and, and, and put it under review, what would then happen when uh, the institutions are suspended as they are now and have been for almost 40% of, of, of their existence? Would you uh, install a, a minister for Northern Ireland? How would that work? And these are all really, really tricky questions when you have such opposition to the very structures that we're talking about here being being integrated together. And on the second point about healthcare, I mean, look, I would just fundamentally disagree that healthcare here is is fantastic. Unless I totally misheard that, I'm pretty sure that's that's what he said. I mean, there's nearly... He said the rugby team are fantastic. Well, the rugby team are fantastic. Therefore, there's no reason and why the health service There can be. be no doubt, no debate about that. Um, but, but, you know, the one million people on waiting lists here... Uh, so, you know, it's there's a two-tier health system. Uh, if you don't have private health insurance, you will be on a waiting list for basic procedures for years and years. Um, so that's a totally different question. But I just think the polling was really interesting when you when you saw the different reasons and and perhaps maybe uh, voters here preferred the idea of an integrated system for the symbolism of it. Um, and it's the reasons behind that you'd want to get behind. And maybe there should be a trial period where you decide will favour a devolved system or keeping, you know, those institutions in place five years' time, review it. And see also where unionists, where actually they prefer to have their power vested. Does it make sense for them to be uh, in, in, in power with a Sinn Féin first minister? Would they have more say and sway 
in an All-Ireland Parliament. And they're the interesting questions that need to be worked out. So in relation to the actual systems, the, the, the one which was most salient by far in the poll, wasn't it, was was about health. Not surprisingly, mm. because that's the one that the most tricky questions arise. And, and each health system in both jurisdictions currently faces all kinds of difficulties and the idea of mashing them up together. Well, we spent a long understandably time... Understandably scares people. Yeah, we spent a long time last week talking about the problems of the health system down here. I'd probably prefer to take a Morris Minor to Mars than to try to tackle integrating the southern and northern health systems into some kind of a cohesive uh, 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 entity that wouldn't be a, a splodge. I mean, the whole point of the Good Friday Agreement from, from an Irish government perspective and from the perspective of Nationalist Ireland was to get an increase in that type of integration. Tourism Ireland, uh, which uh, Mr McGee, who's no relation, by the way, may I add. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I'd be very proud to have him as a relation. Um, but um, he... he um, Steady on, Harry. You might turn up for Christmas dinner in your house. <laughs> Um, we'd have an argument over turkey or goose, of course. But uh, Tourism Ireland, for example, was one of the institutions that was agreed under North-South cooperation, all these North-South bodies that were agreed under the Good Friday uh, Agreement. And they took years and years uh, and uh, um, in the uh, teeth of, of terrible unionist opposition in some cases to get those two fisheries, waterways, uh, trade, uh, tourism. You know, they, they wanted to have more cooperation between North-South bodies as a way of kind of a practical demonstration of, of how cross-border cooperation could work well. Uh, but that, that met unionist resistance. But Tourism Ireland, in fairness, has worked uh, well, as are some aspects of the understandings between the agricultural systems, North and South Milk in particular, uh, the All-Ireland food and, and there were clear quality. incentives for that, you know, and people have benefited from that yeah, on, have, on, on both have. sides but, of the border. But to, to, to get deeper integration, I mean, we talk about health and you talk about other central government functions, you're talking about a deeper integration can and I, can, that's not going to be possible at the moment. Jack, can I ask you briefly about the other part of the question just, be, mm. just, just before we move on, which is this whole thing which has been a lot of talk about, about essentially retaining Northern Ireland as a devolved unit except within a united Ireland post a, post a, post a yes vote as it is currently within the United Kingdom, which and like, I'm perfectly happy to talk about getting rid of the anthem, which I don't like very much. And like, you which know, one? Changing the flag. Changing the flag. <laughs> which? No, we definitely get rid of God Save the King. Um, as long as you get rid of Ireland, Ireland's call. I definitely like. get rid of Ireland's call. Get rid of all the anthems and start from scratch. Discuss what's an appropriate flag. Discuss a lot of stuff to do with that kind of symbolic areas. But the idea of leaving Northern Ireland with its, you know, some vestige of its current post-Good Friday Agreement structures seems to me to be an admission of failure. I'm not against devolution. I'm not against an entire different system of government and not against greater regional powers, all of which might play into something. But why keep bloody Northern Ireland going? Why keep Derry separated from Donegal? Why maintain all the difficulties that currently exist along the border? Because Stormont, no Stormont works so well in its current Exactly, all of that. None of this works. You well, know? I, I, but I think that that particular putative solution was one of the ones that, and I'm sure Pat will correct me here if I'm wrong, one of the ones that enjoyed a kind of stronger support or at least saw some softening of opposition. Uh, unionists don't like the idea of a Northern Ar- of, of a United Ireland, yes. uh, not surprisingly, but they are less opposed to a devolved Northern Ireland than to a unitary state. And, and potentially also less, yeah, and so less opposed to like rural from Dublin as opposed to yes. rural from London. I mean, that, that's the reason, I guess, that yeah. if you I can't know. remember exactly what the model's called. It's like a confederated model. Confederation. Well, yeah. no, 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 no. Confederation is very different. We, we, very different. We'll have so. Brendan O'Leary coming in with a big yes. stick if we start confusing. Uh, the two models that we, that we put to them, and obviously there's some degree of choice um, that we made on this, was an integrated United Ireland, 
or a devolved United. There are yes. other options. Oh, there are let's, other let's, options. Not get, let's not get bogged down in confederations and so on. But oh, I think that that <laughs> I think we spent long enough on that. I agree that's a whole series of the podcasts. I think what are you going to do? Um, but the other the, the other thing that really stuck with me from the series of polls that we did was this idea that there was a hardcore uh, unionist loyalist opposition that could never see itself accepting. Um, United Ireland and the idea that that might in some way be tackled and that they could or that we could begin to approach something resembling uh, loser's consent which is something that again was discussed as part of the polling series and was discussed at length on the podcast and that I think is one of the most interesting things that the series of polls threw up that by varying the question or varying the kind of constitutional nature of the question or of the the solution that was to be offered and whether that will be offered and sketched out fully before or after a referendum took place actually had a fairly meaningful effect on if not voting intent then the degree of acquiescence that people would would display towards whatever constitutional order existed on the island afterwards that whole conversation presupposes an interest amongst people in the South and pro-United Ireland people in the North to accommodate unionists, for which the evidence in uh, across the polls is pretty sketchy. I mean, as you know, I thought the project was fantastic. I do think there was, there was some necessary simplification in yep. some of those options that, that, that were yes. given to yep. people and it would be interesting to dig in further and differentiate between people who want an entirely integrated Ireland because they've never really thought about it and people who want an integrated Ireland for other reasons or want a different political system in a new Ireland or whatever it might be. But we're going to move on to another question. It's from Michael Wickham Moriarty. Hello to Hugh and the Inside Politics podcast team. This is Michael Wickham Moriarty. To spread a little Christmas cheer, I'd like each of the panel members to say what's the most positive development in Irish politics or change in Irish politics that they've seen from when they've started their careers as political journalists to now in December 2022. I'm going to go anti-clockwise around the table and start with Jack. So it's not quite within my career as a political journalist, but it is within my career as a journalist. Um, I think that that the the institution of the lobbying database uh, was something that is to be welcomed and the requirement on lobbyists and people who are seeking, albeit a, a fairly narrow definition of what lobbying is or isn't, but people who are seeking to affect some kind of legislative change in, in, in a private interest, for them to disclose that and for the opportunity to go through that publicly and to then combine that with other tools like freedom of information to extract files and uh, documents that you otherwise wouldn't know where to look uh, and to be able to shed a little light on the nature of corporate governmental relationships is really positive. That's not to say that that is a finished process. Obviously, there needs to be a lot more powers developed to to SIPO and uh, that's something that they have asked for and the government has yet to make good on. So it is important to make that point as well. Harry? Not an event uh, as such. It's just been the remarkably uh, quick transformation um, of Ireland from being quite a narrow and constricted and intolerant society in some ways, officially at least, uh, to being a tolerant um, uh, society that was more open than any other country. And maybe it's because we're small and we're relatively cohesive that we've been able to achieve that. But almost in the blink of an eye, you know, suddenly all of the restrictions that I knew when I grew up as a child and as a teenager in terms of society we kind of railed against them and, you know, unofficially they weren't as, as severe as we thought they were. But by the time I, I hit my 30s and my 40s, they'd gone like a, like, like, a, like a, a puff of smoke. And I just think that we need to praise ourselves for, for, for the society that we have created. And one of the things that I'm kind of thankful for is, and I don't know how long more this will last because I think it will probably change, 
is that Ireland is is one of the few countries in Europe that doesn't have a very strong anti-immigrant or kind of xenophobic or small Ireland party. And I think that's something that Irish people should really pat themselves in the back for. You know, it's it's something that's been transformative in my view. Jen? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and kind of in a similar vein, um, I would say the societal change, um, you know, the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment, giving women kind of a greater choice over their reproductive choices. Um, also, you know, same-sex marriage referendum. Um, I think they were all really positive things. Um, and from a from a legislative point of view, um, I took great heart in seeing that the government actually finally are moving to regulate the world of gambling, which I think has a really toxic, insidious place uh, in homes across the country that people don't talk about. Um, and they finally are doing it. And we've heard about it for years and years. It took an so, awful long time, didn't it? Uh, and it's, they're not there yet, but mm. they're certainly, they're, you know, they're in the process of setting up the regulation and, and uh, all of the legislation around it. And similarly, in relation to regulation around social media. You know, when I started, I was Paul Core. I think I was on Twitter at that stage around, gosh, maybe around five or six years at that stage. And kind of the Wild West, and it still is the Wild West, and it still terrifies me, and I still extremely dislike it. But I think there are moves uh, in the direction to try and put a bit of regulation around that, and and, and Catherine Martin's working on that. And, and that, that I, that's a one area legislatively that I think I would be very much happy to see. Pat. Yeah, let's think about this. Um, I'm actually 20 years covering politics uh, this year, um, so I'm, I'm not as old as I look. But um, I, I think two things, one related to the other. The, the first is, I think the declining voter loyalty. The first election I covered was 2002. And like every other election since the 1930s in that election, Fianna Fáil got in or around 40% because they could be, they were guaranteed to get that in uh, in every election. And Fine Gael got somewhere between 20 and 30 percent. Um, I think they got 22 and a half in that election. Labour got 10 percent and the rest was scattered around. So you had this system that was hugely dominated by the big old parties and uh, and they, they didn't have to work for those votes. They simply relied upon those votes because people, an awful lot of people voted uh, in uh, in alignment with their familial or, or perceived political loyalties. And that is now largely gone. We have a much more diverse political and electoral landscape. Uh, big parties, such as they are, have to work a lot harder for their votes. There is a more, um, there is a more, you know, a div- more diverse political debate. And that has given us, the second part of the, the, the answer I would give is we've given us much more diverse doll. And uh, I, I'm not somebody who, you know, thinks that diversity is the be all and end all of anything. But I think the doll is a richer and, uh, and better place for that. It is also more reflective of the society that it serves. Now, we could be here for a whole other series of podcasts discussing the shortcomings of the doll and the people that we elect to it. But I think it is more like the real Ireland now than the doll of 20 years ago, um, 20 years ago, with its massed, serried ranks of men in suits who did what the whips 
told them there's a lot more women there now there's a lot more badly dressed people which I don't like but I'm willing to accept it as a price as a for a more uh, for, for, for a more uh, diverse and I think representative job Right, that's very good. I am actually going to answer this question also, even though I am actually not a political correspondent and never be one. I'm a journalist. I'm also a bit older. So this allows me to choose this one, which was uh, at the time I was starting out in journalism, people were still killing each other for political reasons on this island on a fairly regular basis and putting bullets in heads and blowing up people in cars and doing all kinds of terrible things. And they have virtually stopped that over the last few few years. And I was just giving off earlier about the rigidities and the failures of the, of the Belfast Agreement and how it isn't fit for purpose now, which I believe, but I also recognise it as the major political achievement of my lifetime on this island and the many lives that it's saved. So on that happy note... I we'll mean, on, on oh, that, just to add something to that briefly, I mean, Harry's made the point about the economic uh, development of the country. Um, by the 1980s, which was, I suppose, the time of my life when I became politically uh, aware as a sort of precocious teenager... Um, you know, the, the twin failures of the Irish state that had always marked it since independence were the festering sore of sectarian violence in the north and its inability and the state's inability to create an economy that could sustain uh, its citizens and sustain a society. Now, those two things are, are, are gone. And... That's an enormous turnaround, notwithstanding all the problems along the way. I'm not quite sure about giving immigration the last rights yet. And, you know, people of myself and Jen's generation, of course, who kind of came to out of college and in around the same time as the economy went off a cliff, obviously saw large, large amounts of our own peer groups go abroad, many of whom haven't come back. Yeah, and I had just started as a journalist but, in the Tribune. But there's huge immigration in here leaving. as well. This Absolutely. is the danger, of course, of when you're asked to say something positive about Irish politics. There <laughs> yeah, is always, yeah. you know, a downside. We accept that. But thanks, Michael, for the question. It was, a, it was an excellent one. We're going to take a break. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back to the podcast. The gang's all here still. Here's a question from Oscar Brophy. Hello, guys. Merry Christmas to you. I just wanted to ask, just on a possible solution for the housing crisis, not that there's anyone, you know, silver bullet. I'm actually living out in Bratislava in Slovakia. Uh, obviously, former Czechoslovakia, and every town in Czech Republic and Slovakia has some um, uh, panel housing. Okay, these are high density, high rise apartments built in like the nineteen seventies onwards. And what they did was, uh, obviously, the communist government at the time they established a bunch of concrete factories to make these giant uh, panels giant concrete panels that uh, just uh, built probably millions of apartments around the around Czech Republic and Slovakia. Uh, obviously, there was uh, similar efforts in, like, Scandinavia and whatnot. Now, aesthetic issues aside, do you think that such a thing could work in Ireland? Setting up one or two gigantic cement factories, building these panels, building... Hundreds of thousands of apartments around the island of Ireland in the next, like, five, ten years. Would that work? Not that I, I highly doubt anyone would actually... I highly doubt any government would actually do it. But uh, do you think it's in the Irish psyche? Could we handle it? Because I know Ballymun wasn't exactly a success. But uh, I think if you, you know, have uh, a bit of a plan, built social, like, proper services, public transport links, everything, to service these um, new housing developments, then, you know... I think the worst thing that would happen is that more people would have a place to live. 
So, yeah, that's my uh, question. Thanks. Harry, setting aside um, the reputation currently of Irish cement factories, um, do you think something like that could work? Something well, more modular? Well, maybe not more with cement, but certainly, I mean, modular housing. And modular housing has been floated as, as a solution to the uh, emergency we have in relation to trying to get uh, uh, housing and accommodation for Ukrainian people. And uh, these modular units are extraordinary. I was listening to somebody on the radio talking about buying a modular house down in Cork and it came in on a flatbed lorry on a Tuesday and the house was being moved into by Friday or Saturday with a couple of, you know, small little details to be added. I mean, essentially, we're talking about houses that are made in factories and then transported to the site. When they're, when they're erected, uh, they um, have very, very high BER energy efficiency. Uh, they have a lifespan of 50 to 60 years, which is more or less the same as our version of the Czech buildings of the 1970s, which was Bungalow Bliss, uh, the, the, uh, which we've seen all over uh, Ireland. And uh, they cost about €150,000 per unit. So to me, that's a solution. And it's a solution that has been used for the Ukrainians, but it's one that should be used more and more throughout the country in relation to filling... And why hasn't that been used? Um, they, they have used it a few times. They have used... There's, there was a, there's a development up in Ballymon uh, where they, uh, which was very successful and the house, housing units turned turned out to be very successful. But they've had difficulties convincing local authorities to... to local authorities have been quite slow to act uh, in relation to a lot of these new innovations. So they've essentially left them to either housing associations or to individuals. And there has been a slower take-up than one would have expected. I'm not quite sure as to why they haven't been taken up more because it's a well-established technology across Europe. You know, there are a lot, a lot of these uh, technologies. The general been... sense of a of a lack of imagination and initiative around around this subject at all. That there's about two or three ways of addressing this problem, and it's the ways we've always done them: building housing estates on greenfield sites. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they want they're, they've talked about brownfield. One, one of the things that the other solution that I that I thought would happen in, in the wake of COVID was because during COVID, a lot of people began to work from home, and they moved out of Dublin and moved to rural locations. And once they had kind of good infrastructure in terms of relatively good road network, good broadband. There was nothing stopping them working from home. There, they, there was a, I think there was an opportunity there to, 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 to uh, by no means would it have solved all of the housing problems, but it would have been another solution to, to build on that momentum. But to me, I think the opportunity wasn't grasped at the time and wasn't followed through. There was talk at the time about 15% of, of those who had moved staying where they'd moved permanently. And that, that would be quite a significant uh, percentage and would ease the pressures in big urban centres like Dublin, Cork, Limerick, Galway and Waterford. But they it just really hasn't happened either. But I think the modular housing option is a really good option and it's one that should be explored mm. and developed by government. And there were, I think there were three reasons that I heard because I've kind of been trying to figure the exact same question out. Why is what, What's the hold up? And I think one of them was around specifications. Um and making sure that they were of a high enough spec, there were disagreements uh, between in conversations with local authorities. The second one was around cost. There was constant disagreements behind the scenes around how much it should cost. And the third one was local objections. There have been a lot of local objections, people saying that piece of land is not suitable, it's a floodplain, there aren't enough facilities in the environment, there aren't enough school places, uh, there aren't enough GP services. And, and these have come to the fore now since the government have committed to rolling that out for Ukrainian refugees. But because it's an emergency situation, the read that I've got from it is that they've had to put the push on. And you'd have to ask the question of why, did, why they didn't do that before when we have a housing crisis, which is also an emergency situation. You know, you would like to think that you would bring 
the same level of effort to that, but, but you know, I suppose it's better late than never. Although that said, you don't want to be building things on floodplains either, you know. Yeah. The difference Unless between slow-moving crises and crises that happen all at once, and as we yeah. found with Ukraine and the refugee crisis and COVID as well, is when it all happens in a very disorientating, shocking and scary way, you're more likely to, like, legitimise a, a I mean, that a seems a particular, a particular feature of the Irish system, doesn't it? That it's, it's, it's not bad with emergencies, but it's pretty terrible at long-term planning. Reactive, yeah. not proactive, yes. Yeah. Okay, uh, moving on, we have another question from uh, Ray O'Connor in Cork. The most recent census showed a big jump in the population. As a result, we may see roughly 10 additional seats added for the next general election. Which parties or individuals would stand to benefit most from this expansion? And although Cormac McQuinn, our colleague from the political team, isn't with us, we did ask him to answer this question. The impact of the expected changes to Dáil constituencies is, is actually going to be fascinating. The census results show that the population is more than, more than 5.1 million. In terms of the ratio of, of one TD per 30,000 people, there, there will have to be at least 171 TDs in the next Dáil. Uh, but actually, the, the legislation uh, bringing in the Electoral Commission will uh, actually allows for up to 181 TDs. And there is, there's some speculation that it's a future proof in terms of further population that, that the Electoral Commission might go towards the, the 181 TD mark. So that, that would be an increase of, of 21 TDs in, in the next stall. In terms of how it would affect particular parties and, and which would benefit the most, well, really, it depends on what part of the country that the, the seats are, are added in. There is some suggestion that, you know, if, if the, the seats were to, to go to about 178, 180 level, um, Dublin could expect five extra seats. Uh, Cork could expect another two. Um, there's also an expectation that places like Donegal, Tipperary and Wexford would each get another seat. Uh, there's an open question as to whether they would go to six-seater constituencies uh, from the from the current five uh, or be split into two three-seaters. The legislation currently doesn't allow for six-seater com- constituencies, so that would have to be amended if, if that were to happen. But let's uh, let's run through the, the individual locations in terms of how parties may benefit. You know, at a very superficial level, you would think that if, if there are five extra seats across Dublin, if Sinn Féin's uh, got its electoral strategy that right for the next election, they they would benefit anyway, and could could, could potentially benefit more uh, from from uh, an extra five seats across the, the capital where where they're they're quite strong. Um, one interesting part of that though might be to consider how in the last election many many TDs uh, you know left wing TDs from smaller parties like Social Democrats and the Green Party for that matter would have benefited from uh, transfers from Sinn Fein uh, because Sinn Fein didn't have second candidates in a lot of these constituencies. If there are extra seats being added, you might expect Sinn Féin to, to pick up two and, and maybe it might benefit some some of those TDs from smaller parties as well that, that might get a transfer down the line. So all may not be lost for, for, those, uh, for those parties that relied on Sinn Féin transfers the last time around. Um, to, to look at the, the kind of the other constituencies might be impacted if, if Donegal goes to six seats, for instance, or, or, or two three-seaters. You know, Sinn Féin are targeting three seats in that constituency at the moment as it stands a five-seater. Um, if it goes to six seats, it, it may well help uh, people like uh, Charlie McConnell or, or somebody, whoever may run for, for, for Fine Gael to, uh, to replace Joe McHugh. Uh, that, that might help them get over the line if there's an, an addition of a seat up there. Uh, Tipperary, where Fine Gael currently have no TD, you would, you would have to expect that they would, they would get somebody, perhaps Garrett Ahern over the line there if, uh, 
if the the number of seats increases in that in that location. Um, similarly, you know, you would expect Sinn Fein to run a, have a running mate in Wexford next time around for uh for for their for their uh, TD uh, Johnny Mythen. So you know it, that might be a place that that Sinn Fein would just would just pick up an extra seat. Um. You know, if there, if there are two extra seats in Cork, you might look at a place like Cork South Central, where which currently has uh, two two Fianna Fáil, uh, two at uh, uh, one one Fine Gael and one Sinn Fein. Uh, it might be a way back for for Jerry Buttermer, the the current Cahirlock of the Shannon, uh, to to get in on Simon Coveney's coattails next time around. If there's a if if there's an increase in the number of seats there, uh, so you know it 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 has a potential to be a, a major shake up ahead of the the next uh, general election. And thanks to Cormac for that. Now, another question came in from Sean O'Shea, and it's as follows. The media, including the Irish Times, frequently present Irish politics as a contest between a centre-right government and a left-wing opposition. Given how decisively Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have moved to the left on social and economic policies since around the middle of the last decade, isn't this a mischaracterization of the government? In my opinion, both of these parties today are indistinguishable from centre-left parties in Europe and North America and have little in common with other centre-right parties or their former leaders like Bertie O'Hearn and John Bruton. And that is the question, except Jack, while I was reading it out, you said that's a comment. <laughs> but on the other hand, there is a question buried within the comment, which the is that... Isn't, isn't, isn't this a mischaracterization of the well, government? Well, it, it is a thing that's come up from time to time, isn't it? That if you yeah. look at, you know, the, the, the main right-wing parties in France or Germany or certainly in the United Kingdom, they are, you know, they're avowedly conservative. They stand on, you know, actual centre-right principles about things like reducing taxation, um, very often policies on migration and certain other issues that you don't see from, from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael here. So is he right? Is there a point there about how I we tend, I tend not these? to agree with Sean. I mean, look, part of this is, you know, you, 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 you widen the scope and you talk about, you know, there's never really been a kind of traditional left-right structure in Irish politics because of the persistence of, of civil war politics and so on, which, you know, is in, in the round true. But when you look at it more closely, there has been examples, certainly, of, of periods of, of centre-right um, economic thinking, uh, most notably during the Celtic Tiger, um, or, a, or a kind of more laissez-faire approach to the economy. I think that, you know... The reason I I disagree is because I think one of the things that we parse most on this politics is how Irish politics is shifting a little bit to the left or if not to traditionally to the left to a model of of greater state provision and how um, both parties, I think, uh, both large parties in the current government have embraced that. So I don't don't think that, you know, we do present it as a contest between a centre-right government. In fact, I think we we spend an awful lot of energy discussing exactly where on the the political compass this this government may may sit. And I don't think any of us think that it's it's traditionally centre-right, although it does have its centre-right moods and modes and and members, um, particularly I'm thinking of, of Leo Varadkar and, you know, his most recent kind of high-profile gambit for a new lower rate of income tax for higher earners. Um, but you see that as the exception rather than the rule. And I thought it was very interesting that that, that was an idea that, that got little traction with his coalition partners and even within some in his own, in his own party and was kind of shot down at least temporarily um, by, uh, by the Department of Finance. So... Um, I think Irish politics is in a state, is in, is in a moment of, of pretty kind of profound change and um, trying to figure out where each party 
aligns itself, whether it even is or can be construed as along a traditional kind of left-right spectrum, I think is one of the kind of puzzles that we work through all the time on this podcast and within our, in our wider coverage. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because that left-right spectrum is breaking down all over the place, uh, it, or at least it's, it's being kind of disrupted and turned into turmoil by the rise of, you know, right-wing populism, environmentalism, different forms of political activism. I mean, the old days with, you know, in, in Europe with a big social democratic party and a big Christian democratic party are behind us now, aren't they? Well, I mean, we've talked about it here before, as Jack says. I mean, I think that the the centre of gravity of Irish politics has moved substantially to the left, uh, partly as a result of the financial crash uh, and, and the outworkings of that. But also, more dramatically, I suppose, in recent years when, you know, you had the, the pandemic and the rise of the state doing absolutely everything. I think one of the consequences of that will be that you know there is a bigger state in years to come and that bigger state will have to be financed currently it has been financed by corporation tax but we think that won't last forever at least not in the proportions in which it is currently gushing into the uh, exchequer's coffers so i think maybe that's one of the things we can look forward to in the medium term future is a more conventional debate about resources, the allocation, the raising of resources and uh, and their allocation. Is right and left purely about the <laughs> economics of greater or lesser state expenditure? Are there not, not, other, not other issues as well, social issues and various other things? No, but those social issues, it is about other things. It are, at least as traditionally understood, it has been about social issues as well. But there's very little debate on those social issues in, uh, in Ireland now. They're not a point of political difference. I mean, even during the abortion referendum, the two big parties who would have had many people within them who were conservative on the question uh, allowed people a uh, allowed people a free vote, and many of their TDs uh, exercised it. But I think those questions of personal freedom and that have largely disappeared as dividing lines uh, within politics here to the extent uh, that they ever were. So it is overwhelmingly the, you know, the, 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 the size of the state, the amount of resources that the state should raise from its citizens through taxation, where that taxation should be applied, and then the reach that the state has in the spending of those, uh, of those resources. They are the kind of central distributional questions of politics. And whether we label those right or left or whatever, they're not going to go away because they are the essence of political debate. Yeah, I think the question was framed in the economic context. Mm. I think Pat w- w- was right to address it in that in that sense. One of the things that struck me about Leo Varadkar's speech on uh, Saturday was that it was very different in character to the speech he gave in 2017 when he first became Taoiseach or during the campaign to become Taoiseach. There were no references to people who got up early in the morning. In fact, when I was reading through the speech, I thought it was quite a good speech and there were a couple of very good uh, uh, phrases in it. It struck, when I was reading it, I said that, that that could be a speech that could be given by the leader of the Labour Party in Britain. You know, uh, it's it's certainly not a Tory speech. It's more of a Labour Party speech. So is there not, I mean, Pat mentioned earlier Jared Howland's criticism of the current government. Is there no market in the Irish political marketplaces? Is there no appetite anywhere on the political spectrum for low-tax, pro-free enterprise, the kind of thing that, that energised the political, the progressive Democrats 30 years ago? Um, I, I don't think so. Parties tend to be centrist in Ireland, especially when in government. And I think I'd agree with Pat's point that they have drifted or have moved or have gravitated towards the centre, maybe left of centre in, in the past 
10 years, especially in the past 10 years uh, since the recession. There's an old joke about Irish politics. It relates to a slogan that the Labour Party had in the 1970s. Um, and um, they were saying the, the, um, the, the, um, the answer is socialism. And uh, some wit said, well, the Labour Party uh, uh, forgot to ask the question. The question is, what would the Labour Party not touch with a 10-foot pole? <laughs> uh, socialism is the answer. So um, they do tend to gravitate towards the centre. And, and the converse is true. I think if Sinn Féin do go into power over the next three years, you'll see Sinn Féin kind of gravitating more, maybe it's more left of where it will be at in government. So it'll gravitate more towards the centre. And I think Pat identified it there, the, the, the state has grown, the welfare state has grown, and perhaps the dependency culture has grown as well. And if the magic mon- money tree, otherwise known as corporation tax, does begin uh, to wither over the next five or six years, there might be a difficulty then there. Then things might, might become different. Because it's, the funny thing is, I remember, it was always the case of old lefties giving off about the, the problem with Irish politics was that it wasn't ideological enough. And it still probably isn't ideological enough for, for those people who want it to be ideological. Oh, well, they, they, the parties, the two main parties tend to be quite pragmatic and they have, they have shape-shifted in order to... Mm-hmm. to, to uh, this is one of the reasons why they continue to exist is that yeah. they've learned to accommodate themselves to the prevailing winds. Absolutely, and I think I think that's going to be true going forward. Maybe they'll be shape shifting into each other. Maybe they'll be morphing or kind of fusing. We don't know. That's another question to be addressed in 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 future. Mm, sounds messy. Um, we'll come to our last question. It comes from Cooper Doyle, who's in Monroe, in Louisiana, in the United States. And Cooper asks the following question: Is there any specific aspect of the Irish political system you think would especially benefit the U.S. if we imported it? And also, is there any aspect of the American political systems, by which I mean our processes and our systems like first-past-the-post or equal-bicameralism or an executive presidency, that you would want to import to Ireland? Jen? I actually haven't a clue. I don't know. (laughs) Is there anything that we would want to import? I I wouldn't. First-past-the-post, no. I wouldn't have thought so. I know there's a huge debate around you know, our system now. But I, I think it does, yes, of course, it has, uh, you know, there are pros and, and, and cons to it. But I think it does have favour with uh, the Irish people. Um, and I'm just not so sure that, you know, a first-past-the-post system would work here in the same way. And I don't think it would be uh, beneficial. Um, I, look, one of the things that I mentioned earlier on, and you'll all slag me now, is I do think that the system that we've come up with when we have really big issues in which there aren't agreement but are hugely oh, important. I do. Well, it's for me, it's the idea of kind of bringing together parties that uh, fundamentally disagree on issues that are of, you know, importance and, you know, potentially life or death. You know, we're going to have this conversation now about assisted dying um, uh, in the coming months with, with a special committee being set up to look at that. And I think it is a good way to thrash out a debate uh, that doesn't have to become polarised. And and that's often what happens if you have that debate through the media um, uh, or on the floor of the doll. Um, so I think in not saying those, I'm saying those kind of structures, I think, have served us well. And they have created debates in places like Canada and the UK. Um, and, and perhaps that's one, one thing to look at. One of the things about committees is they used to have a very good committee system in the United States, but mm-hmm. it seems to have to be pol- have been polarised and arguably destroyed by the rise of you know extreme political polarisation because it used to have a lot of cross-party uh, cooperation, which you don't seem to have really to the same extent. And that, that's something that politics is grappling with generally is kind of the increased polarisation um, and it's something that Michal Martin was actually talking about in his uh, speech as outgoing uh, Taoiseach at, at the weekend, uh, kind of something that he said he was most concerned about, some of which is partially driven by 
social media, you know, fitting all your one thoughts into 90 characters or into 30 characters, whatever it is. And the fact that actually life is so much more nuanced than that. And any debate is so much more nuanced than that. And we're all so much more nuanced than that. And I suppose uh, if there's one thing that I could recommend in whatever format it would take, it is finding a, a mechanism by which people can actually thrash out a debate and maybe you won't always come to an agreement, but you'll certainly come to a better understanding. Pat, something we could give to the Americans and something the Americans could give to us. Uh, we could give them independent redistricting, otherwise known as constituency commission that is not controlled by elected politicians. So get rid of gerrymandering. Get rid of gerrymandering. Yeah, it has led to, uh, it, well, it has exacerbated the problem with political polarisation in, uh, in the States. It's an absolute disaster. Everybody knows it, but they can't figure out how to... Um, because they're constrained by the American Constitution. That's their problem, isn't it? Is that it's at state level. Um, so the federal government can't intervene, is prevented from intervening, and the states do what they want. But more particularly, whoever's in power in the states does. Mm-hmm. Uh, d- and it becomes self-perpetuating because yes. they have these permanent majorities yeah, permanent based majorities, on gerrymandering. Yeah. No, it's, an abs- it's an absolute disaster. So our system is much better. Um, uh, much better than them. Um, to import one thing from there to here, I know it's a question of scale, but um, there's a really uh, rich ecosystem in, principally in Washington, of think tanks, policy labs, and that which furnish a kind of a constant diet of policy ideas uh, to government that we really don't have here. Great opportunity uh, as well for a journalist who might decide it's time to move <laughs> well, on to uh, well, honestly, God, uh-huh. I suppose if a, fella, if, if a fella had spent maybe, you know, two decades as uh, a political yeah. uh, journalist and was finally found out, um, <laughs> then, you know, he, he could perhaps move on to head up a think tank, um, uh, perhaps funded by a uh, funded by incredibly rich donors who could keep him in this style to which he could rapidly become accustomed. <laughs> Harry. Um, the thing that we could import to America, I don't like the idea of attorneys general and mayors, uh, sorry, mayor, not mayors, but police chiefs and uh, prosecutors being elected. I think that just over politicizes roles uh, that that should be left to to career professionals. And I think it does remove kind of objectivity and it does allow them to be over populist. In relation to what America could import to us, I'm actually struggling. I think the it it, it has some really fine um, um, agencies. It has some agencies that are not so good, but I think the EPA in the States, which is the Environmental Protection Agency, it's actually the model on which our own one is is based. Charlie Hawley went there in 1990, 1991 and actually went to their headquarters and came back to Ireland and said, I want to have something like that for here. I think such agencies actually, once they have enough funding and once they're free enough from kind of too much partisan politics and environment is always going to be a little bit partisan. I think agencies like that can work very well when given the kind of the independence and the funding that they have in the States. And it would be nice to see a couple of agencies like that over in Ireland. Maybe not the FBI and the CIA, though. Jack? Um, something they could take from us, I think they could get rid of the way they appoint their cabinets. Um, it always struck me as kind of slightly creepingly anti-democratic, the fact that you don't appoint a cabinet composed of, of elected people. And it also not only of, that, you appoint a couple of thousand civil servants yeah, they coming in the door. Yeah, it's um, and and it, it strikes me that it also, it makes the political system <clears throat> over there, the, the congressional side of it, a little bit more opaque because you don't really quite understand where power is situated within it. Whereas like with, with having a ministerial appointment. Separation and of someone, the executive. Someone, the who, and someone who's, who's politically responsible for you know, executing an agenda. Um, I think I think that that system just just works better. Um, but the uh, what we could do from them, 
I take I take the I take the big wall. You know, John King's big wall, not Donald Trump's one. From oh, CNN's yeah. John King's yeah. big wall, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I take that. I yeah. take that. And and yeah, and, and some of the more some of the more kind of you know weird and strange elements of their their media, like when Van Jones started crying after the last. Uh, <laughs> You'd like that? You, the, would you like to do that on prime time? I, yeah, yeah. In fact, <laughs> yeah. I've been in here in this podcast studio for so long that I may start crying anyway. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, honest, 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 the end is now, Jack, don't worry. I'm going to offer him is, I, you mentioned um, our proportional representation system. I think they could definitely take that. In fact, they are in some states. They already do it, I think, in, in, in New Hampshire, and they introduced it recently in Alaska, and it's coming in a couple of other states, and it's already um, prevented Sarah Palin from uh, entering the House of Representatives, so it clearly works on some level. It does what we know it does, which is it tends to get mo- uh, offer more buy-in from a larger part of the electorate. It means fewer people meet, feel entirely excluded, which so many people do if you're in a blue state and you're not a Democrat or if you're in a red state and you're not a uh, sorry, if you're in a blue state and you're not, uh, yeah, and you're not a Democrat, if you're a red state and you're not a Republican, you might see you have absolutely no, you know, ownership of the political system at all. In terms of what we get from them, I used to think that their committee system was fantastic, you know, and I kind of grew up with the excitement of seeing, you know, Watergate and all these kinds of things and these, these systems working, of, of inquiry working incredibly well. We've just seen the end of the, of the Trump investigation and their recommendation to the Department of Justice, which is, which is very interesting and we'll see what happens with that. But even that, I think, has been poisoned and corroded by the kind of terrible degradation of the American system. I think it's faced with some of its worst challenges that it's ever faced and it's more than 200 years of existence, I think. Um, but this podcast is ending as our podcasts always tend to do with me wittering on and everybody else, everybody else <laughs> slowly fading. Now, yes, Pat, can you can go to the pub. We are all going to go to the pub now, but it only does remain for me to, to thank everybody um, for a great year, actually, in many ways. Thanks to Pat and to Jennifer. Um, thanks to, to Jack and to Harry and to Cormac, who couldn't be with us, but will be with us again in, in the new year. I'm Hugh Linehan. Our producer is Declan Conlon. Our engineer is JJ Vernon. We're going to be back in 2023 which is coming down the tracks at us very fast. Uh, But until then, thanks very much for listening and a happy new year.